Go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2 and, and chapter 5 in a second as well. Um, when I when we were somewhat early in our marriage, Caitlin and I, when we were married, I think it was somewhere around the third year, I purchased a motorcycle. Uh, that, was a, that motorcycle was a small 400cc it was called a Buell Blast, fun little bike, kind of in between cruiser and sport bike if you are familiar with motorcycles at all. Um, I drove it around for I think about a year on just a permit and after a year I think there was a deadline to go and get my motorcycle license so I decided to go up to the the track, the little parking lot track where you go to get your test taken and evaluated to do a little practice. And I went up there and I was practicing my weaving and bobbing uh, on their little track that they have laid out and there's different steps you have to go through. And one of the final things you do in that test is you accelerate up to 20 miles per hour and then you abruptly stop and you have to stop before you get to a specific mark in the parking lot. And let me just say, I failed the test before I even took it. I wiped out, went over the front of the bike, and caught myself with my hands like this, and injured my wrist, and because of my pride, was not willing to go into the doctor right away to get that evaluated, because I was like, ah, oh, it's fine, it'll be fine. Well, a couple days went by, and it still hurt pretty bad. And so a friend of mine who actually worked and ran a, an orthopedic practice, was able to get me an appointment the, the next day with their specialist, their wrist specialist. And sure enough, I had broken what's called the scaphoid bone. The scaphoid bone is a very small bone in between the thumb and the main arm bone. It's just a small little bone that connects those two and gives your wrist most of its motion and movement. And that tiny little bone broke and the next thing I knew, I had a cast that was going from the tip of my thumb all the way up above my elbow because of this tiny little bone that had broken. And that's a picture of what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 12 of the church. Paul says that the church is made up of many members and some in our eyes are seemingly small, others play a bigger part but Paul says if any of those members are missing or cannot function the way they're supposed to function, the whole body feels it. My, my whole body became very inconvenienced for eight weeks because of a small bone that had broken. And that's a picture of the church. Made up of many members, we play many different roles, but when one goes missing, the body feels it, or the body should feel it. And this morning we're going to talk about what is the body, specifically the church, made up of? Who is made? Who makes up the church? And so we're going to talk about members and leaders. Members and leaders. Another way to think about that is sheep and shepherds. The sheep and the shepherds. So those are the two things we're going to look at from these two passages in 1 Peter. And let me just say, starting out, there's a lot that could be said on this that I'm not going to be able to say everything. And so there are also many conversations that we have throughout the year and in one-on-one -on -one conversations 
on this type of topic of membership, leadership, all that kind of stuff. But I want to try to give you a picture of what Peter writes to in these two passages. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9, and then we'll flip over to chapter 5. Says this in 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're still following along, <clears throat> 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You join me in prayer again. Holy Spirit, as, um, as we've already prayed, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done. Specifically now, as we come to the preaching of your word, do that through this message. Pray that your will would be done in, in how this is talked about, how this is received, how this is listened to, and how we respond and apply this, that your will would be done in our lives and that your kingdom would come as a response of your word bearing fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, two things this morning for you, and actually we've, we've now been providing for you an outline on the back of your worship guide if you would like to use that to follow along. It's just a simple two-point outline. Uh, the main idea this morning for the sermon is that God has organized the church with the purpose of making, growing, and keeping disciples. So, so he gives the actual organization, how the church is meant to function organizationally in order to fulfill its purpose of making disciples, keeping those disciples, and growing those disciples. So we're going to look at what is that organization? How does he organize the church? And he does that primarily in two main ways. Through the membership, that is the general membership of the flock, and then through its leadership, how those members are led. And we see this structure laid out in the New Testament. 
and specifically in these two passages. So let's look first at the members or the sheep, the flock. What is the flock of God in specifically in the church? So we see several things. If you're in 1 Peter chapter 2, follow along. I'm going to bring out several things out of this passage. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people belonging to God. We are a people who proclaim that his excellencies. We are people who have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. We are a people who now belong to God. We are God's people, those who have received mercy. We are sojourners and exiles. And we are those who exercise good deeds. All of these things laid out in this passage. So I want to try to break that down, kind of break that into categories. The first category is that the church is made up. Those who are members and belong to the body of Christ are sinners who have been saved by God's mercy. Sinners saved by God's mercy. We see that when it says at the end of verse 10 that we were once not God's people, but now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Another way it describes that is that we were once in darkness, but we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we are people who are chosen. All of these descriptions of God's people emphasize God's grace and mercy in our salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we are chosen. God is the one who has chosen those who he will save. He has called them to himself, called them out of the world into his marvelous light, out of darkness, into light. So that emphasizes God's work in salvation, not our work, not our choosing. God chose us. He called us. He brought us out of darkness and brought us into light. He showed us mercy. Do you see all those things? All of those descriptions emphasizing God's grace and mercy in our salvation. It's something we could not do in and of ourselves. God had to do it. God had to act, and that's exactly what he did. He sent Jesus, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to move in us so that we might believe in Jesus and what he has done. So the church, first and foremost, is made up of people who have been sinners, who are sinners, and have been saved by God's mercy and grace. That's the church. The church isn't, first and foremost, a bunch of good people. It's not a bunch of good people. We are called holy, but we are holy because God has made us holy. He has set us apart from the world. So we are sinners saved by grace, but then we are a united people. Where do we see this? We see this, I think, in several descriptions. It says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And then later in verse 10, we are God's people. Look at all those general descriptions of the church. They are a specific people group, a specific race, a specific nation. Now, this is not talking about ethnic, socio-economic, political, governmental, regional background association. This is talking about 
all of God's people, those who have been saved by God's grace, now are a part of a whole new people group. You see that? That has nothing to do with your ethnicity, nothing to do with how much money you have, nothing to do with your culture or background or upbringing. But the thing that brings us together is that God has shown us mercy. He has called us holy because he has called us his people. He has called us out of the world and given us a new identity. And that unifies us regardless of our other descriptors. Do you see that? And so we are unified as God's people now. So we are sinners saved by grace who are now united together, a united people. And then in verse 11, it says, we are sojourners and exiles. What does that mean? We don't use those terms a whole lot anymore. So what are some terms we do use? When you think of the word sojourner, you can think of the word wanderer or traveler or alien or non-citizen or someone who is uh, someone who is a wayfarer. We're going to sing a song a little bit about being wayfaring strangers, which ties in with this text, I believe. But a wayfarer. Another example I got was the movie. I used I used a Disney movie last year, last week. I'm going to use another one, Moana. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Moana, but it's about a people group who live on an island, and one of the one of the girls on the island discovers that their history, their lineage, goes back to the fact that their people were once voyagers. There were people who traveled the oceans and went from island to island, lived off the land for a little while, and then set off on adventure again to go to another place. They didn't have a specific home. They were voyagers. They were travelers. And that's how Christians are described. Why? Because this world is not our home. We're just traveling through on our way to our eternal home, our eternal rest. So we are sojourners in this world because we're not citizens of this world we're citizens of heaven but then it also says we are exiles what's an exile an exile is someone who has been cast out of a of a group or someone who is not welcomed into a group or someone who is just not a part of that group so some of the terms we use is outcast or alien or foreigner or refugee or immigrant those are all terms that kind of are equivalent to this idea of being in exile. And so that, that's us as believers. We don't belong to this world. We belong to another world. And because of that, we're just traveling through. We're passing through. So all of these are ways that God describes his own people. So we don't belong to the world. We belong to one another. We are a family, a nation. We are a holy priesthood. We are united and we are sinners saved by grace. Now, all of these things that I've pointed out can be said of the church generally. What do I mean by that? Well, when we start getting into the conversation of membership, um, there is an aspect of being a member of the church as a whole, that we are united with all believers everywhere from all, all times in history. So uh, last week we used the, the confession, the Apostles' Creed. And at one point in that creed, we confessed, I believe, in the Holy Universal Church, the old 
term there is the Holy Catholic Church. That's not talking about Catholicism and Roman Catholic and all that. And that's talking about the universal unified church throughout all of time, all of history, all of the world. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the church that you are a member of broadly, generally. But there is an aspect, I believe, in the Bible laid out for specific local church membership or affiliation. And this is where there's a lot of disagreement, debate, um, misinterpretations, different interpretations of what the Bible talks about when it's talking about being a member of the body. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is talk about why I believe, okay, generally we're all, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we belong to the church broadly. But for the next few minutes, I want to try to talk, talk about the importance of being a part of a specific local church and why that is important for your walk in faith. And so where I think this is laid out is really all throughout scriptures, but specifically in the New Testament, it starts to get more applicable here. And so what do we see in the New Testament? We see specific local gatherings of believers, which are called churches. You see that in Paul's letters. You see that in the book of Acts. You see that in um, uh, Peter's letter that, that he writes to specific churches in specific places. In Revelation, you have the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia and Laodicea. There are specific churches in specific places to which people belong and they are affiliated with. So that's the first thing in the Bible that I think we see a pattern of is specific churches in specific places. But then we get um, charges to those churches, specific commands and charges. You have passages like Hebrews 13. If you flip backwards just a few pages, you'll probably get to it. But Hebrews 13 verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now that verse says a few things that I think when you understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying, starts to get into the specifics of local committed believers. It says, obey your leaders. Okay? Is that every leader in the church, every pastor, every elder that I'm supposed to obey and submit to if I'm a member of the body of Christ generally? Or do I specifically have leaders in the church that I am to submit to and obey and follow? And then at the same time, it says, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, to which they will give an account. So then you have to ask, okay, who are the leaders of the church accountable for? Am I, as a pastor, accountable for every other believer on the face of the earth because I'm a pastor? No, I should have a specific group of people that I understand myself to be a pastor of. Yes, I can be a pastor of the community generally, but I specifically have sheep that I am accountable for. And that's humbling, but that's what the scripture lays out, that I'm accountable for and that they are accountable to me and the leadership of Christ Community Church. And, and so there is a committed, some type of committed covenant relationship laid out in scripture. Some churches call it membership. 
Some churches call it partnership. I don't really care what you call it. We call it membership. But there is an aspect of a covenant committed relationship in a local church body. And then out of that relationship between members and leaders, you have other commands specifically given to the church, things like church discipline. Again, for the purpose of maintaining and keeping and growing disciples of Christ, church discipline is given to us by Jesus in Matthew 18 when he says, if a brother is in sin, go to them and point that out. If they don't listen to you, bring two or three others if they still don't listen to you, if they don't repent, if they don't return, then take it to the church. Does that mean I tell the whole world of Christian believers that this brother is in sin? No. There's a specific group of people labeled the church that this person is accountable to. And if there's no sense of contractual, covenantal, vow-type relationship... Who are they accountable to and who am I accountable for? Do you see that? And so I know there's, there's dis disagreements, there's different interpretations of what membership means, but I believe without some sort of covenant commitment, you are actually hindering your Christian growth and accountability. You see, some of the applications of this would be um, things like uh, the, the idea of free market commercialization that has taken over the church. What do I mean by that? Free market commercialization. Well, we believe in a free market, right? We should be able to compete for, for uh, customers and all that in the business world. Well, churches have taken on that mindset. We compete for members. We compete for attenders. And that's not the way it should be. We really should be partners in the kingdom of God. But instead, there's this kind of church shop mentality. I'm going to find my favorite preacher. I'm going to find my favorite music. I'm going to find my favorite building. And, and that's where I'm going to go. And that's who, you know, if, if things fall apart here, then I'm just going to go to the next place that fulfills my desires and needs. That's not the way God set up the church. Now, there are good reasons for leaving a church, I believe. Bad leadership, toxic environment. Bad teaching and preaching, doctrine, all that kind of stuff are good reasons to leave, but it should not be easy to leave a church. What do I mean by that? If you have committed to a local body of believers, then it should not be easy for you to say, ah, never mind, I'm out. Or for those leaders to then say, ah, forget them, just let them go. It should not be easy for people to leave a church. There should be a commitment to one another that if someone has to leave, whether they move or whether they disagree with teaching, that a conversation can happen, shepherding can happen, discipleship and accountability can all happen. I don't think that can happen outside of committed, local, what we call membership. Okay? Now, I know that's different than some people are maybe online with, um, but then the other thing is there, there really is, I think, a cultural hesitancy here. What do I mean? In our Western society over the past, you know, 100, 200 years, we have really taken on a mentality of individualistic, self-autonomous, private, independent, self-centered, proud, self-focused, convenience, comfort-based society and culture. That's the world we live in if we live in the United States of America. 
And it kind of bucks up against any idea of corporate commitment, um, establishment type mentality. And so you have to also evaluate your interpretation of scripture through your cultural lens. Does your society have any say on how you read the Bible? It has a say on how I read it sometimes, but we have to try to interpret it to the best of our ability without the cultural bias coming through. And there really are membership ideas everywhere if you think about it. If you're gonna join a sports team, there's a contractual type of agreement there. If you join a company, there's a contractual type of agreement. There's accountability there. And so wouldn't it make sense that in the church, when we talk about the most important aspect of your life, growing as a disciple of Jesus, there's going to be some sort of contractual covenant type of commitment there to one another. There's accountability on behalf of the elders and leaders, but there's also accountability for its members. And we see that laid out in Scripture. So that's the first thing. The members, the sheep of God's church. The second thing we see, if you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5, is when he speaks specifically to the elders. <clears throat> so he's speaking to the elders of the church, which the term elder can mean pastor, it can mean shepherd, it can mean um, overseer, or another term that it gets translated as sometimes is bishop. So elder, bishop, leader, pastor, overseer, all of those words is what we're talking about. So he says, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse two, shepherd the flock of God. So what is the primary task of the leaders, specifically the elders of the church? Is to shepherd the sheep. So what does a shepherd do in caring for the sheep? He, he guides and leads them. He protects them. He feeds them. He um, cares for them, loves them. And so as a pastor or elder of the church of God, that is our primary role. Now think about the terms that Peter, this is Peter writing this, decides to use. If you're familiar with the story of Peter and Jesus at the end of John, in chapter 21, right at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, who has denied Jesus three times right before Jesus' death, Peter denied Jesus three times before the cock crowed. You remember that story? And so Jesus, when he reappears, he's standing, he's sitting, actually having a meal with Jesus, or he's having a meal with Peter, this disciple and apostle who has denied him three times. And then he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then he says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, care or tend for my sheep. And then he asks him a third time. How many times did he deny him? Three times. How many times did he ask him, do you love me? Three times. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. What does he say? Feed my sheep. What is Jesus telling Peter? Several things that are loaded in that passage. He's saying, if you want to lead my people, you need to see them, see yourself as a shepherd taking care of a flock of sheep. You need to feed them, care for them, protect them, tend them, love them, guide them. But if you want to shepherd my people, you're not going to be able to do that 
unless you love me. And we love because he first loved us. If your pastor, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about myself, any elders in the future leadership of this church, even general leaders in this church, if they do not know Jesus' love and love Jesus, they're going to make a really bad pastor. They need to know Christ's love for them if they are going to love you. And so pray for me and pray for Jack. Pray for Kelsey. These are men who are in conversation about being future leaders and elders in this church. But also pray for anyone who has a desire to be a leader of the flock of God. Pray that even right now, they're meeting with Jesus to know his love so that his love will flow through them in order to love the flock of God. So we are shepherds and elders. Look at a few other of these things that it breaks down. It says, they are to lead, they are to have oversight, look in, the, in verse 2, exercise oversight, but not under compulsion. What does that mean? I think it very simply means don't just do your job out of a sense of obligation. You know, I now have the pastor title, so I'm obligated to do certain things. I need to prepare my sermon every week. Check. I need, I should probably call a few people every week. Check. I should probably wish people a happy birthday. Check. If that's my approach to being an elder and a leader, I'm doing that under a sense of obligation and compulsion, not because I desire to have oversight over people and love them and care for them. And again, I need Jesus's love if I'm going to love people in that way. And then it says that you are to do this not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What does that mean? Listen, there are a lot of people who have sought out to be pastors, who have sought out to be elders or leaders in the church simply for status or some sense of pride, like I could do that, or I could do that better, or yeah, people could learn a little something from me. There's a sense of pride and, e and eagerness, not out of a desire to lead and love people and care for people, but shameful gain. Looking for some sort of personal fulfillment or accomplishment. And if a pastor is in a position where they're leading in for shameful gain, that's actually what's going to lead to the next breakdown, which is that they would not be domineering, but that they would set an example for the flock. But what does it mean to be domineering? To always have to get your way. To, to, to lead from a sense of a bullying kind of mentality. My way or the highway. And there again are a lot of pastors that operate this way. You don't question the pastor. Don't touch the Lord's anointing. Right? And that's just the wrong mentality of a pastor. And so what are we to do? We are to set examples. I think what this means specifically, if we really think about it, is if you think the church, sheep, should serve, show up for church, do the work of evangelism, befriend unbelievers, pray for unbelievers, share the gospel with unbelievers, attend other events that the church tries to be a part of, volunteer, love one another, pray for one another, engage in worship, well, that means the leaders should be doing that, shouldn't they? And those who would wish to be qualified as leaders should be engaged in those very same things. Praying, loving, attending, serving, all of these things. 
We are not special because we have a certain position or title. We first are also members of the church before we are leaders of the church. We first are sinners saved by grace and mercy before we lead those who are saved by sin, sinners who are saved by grace and mercy. We are God's people called out and chosen by grace before we lead those who are chosen and called out by grace. And so if we don't see ourselves as fellow members and partakers in the grace of God, that will also create a culture of domineering, proud uh, leadership structure that is just not healthy for a church. So what's the last description he says? He says, be humble with one another. Leaders, too, should have humility as a main marker of their lives. And so to try to apply all this, the first thing I want to say is we're going to finish this series on a church. We're going to try to get into a few specifics. We're going to try to finish this series on the church in a few weeks. And when we finish that, <clears throat> I've actually ordered several copies of this book. It's called Rediscover Church. It was written sort of as a response coming out of the COVID pandemic where a lot of previous church attenders are not attending anymore. A lot of people have seen live stream as sort of a default backup or even a secondary option for attending church. And I understand your know, live stream is convenient for those who must stay home for safety, for uh, health reasons, for whatever reasons. It's a good option for following worship, but I don't use terms like online worship. I don't think that's a thing. I don't say go to church online. I don't think you can do that. I don't call it virtual worship. What I usually say is watch us worship online or follow us online. But for those who cannot be here, they should miss something when they're not here. If they don't miss something, they don't have a deeper appreciation for corporate, gathered, public, in-person worship that they should have, that I should have, that we should have. If you're not here on Sunday morning regularly, there should be a desire to be here if you're a follower of Christ, to be with other believers, to partake of the means of grace, which we talked about last week, regularly. And again, yes, there are reasons for not making it on certain Sundays, but I don't believe that should be the norm or the assumption. And if it is for health reasons, I said this last week, let's pray for people to be able to be back here, that they would be able to join us again in the corporate gathered public worship. So this book really speaks specifically to that, but also to aspects of membership, leadership, all of those things. It's a simple little book, and we're going to start that as a church in February. So there's a couple of copies back there. If we need to order more in the next couple of weeks, I will do that. You don't have to pay for it. If you want to give a, a donation, you can. But grab a book for your household and take that with you. There's one per household. Uh, if you want extra copies, we can get some of those for kids or spouses or all, any of that. So that's the first application is consider joining us for that. The second application, very, very simply, I just want to say, if you are not a member and you are a regular attender here at Christ Community Church, and for whatever reason you've been membership hesitant, would you just be willing to have a conversation about that? And maybe you, you don't come to any conclusion. Maybe you say, you know end up in the same place. But are you willing in some form or fashion to commit yourself 
and hold yourself and have others hold you accountable as a member of the body of Christ? That's just a very simple question. And then the last thing is when we talk about leaders and elders and uh, other forms of leadership are deacons and women's ministry leaders. Those are things that we as a church need. As we move towards wanting to become a particular church, that is a church that is self-sustaining, self-governing, we hope to be in that place in the next two or three years. We need elders, we need deacons, which are called to serve and to steward the, the, the means of the church, the property, the finances, all those things. Steward God's people and steward his stuff. That's the role of deacons, to serve and, and to use um, their gifts to help others and to help the church. And then we need some specific women leaders to lead other aspects of the ministry as well. We need all of those things at this church. And so pray for that. And as, as I say that, if you're thinking, maybe that is me, I, I want to have a conversation. Or I know somebody that would that definitely fulfills that qualification. Talk to them. And then come talk to us about that. Let's let's just have a conversation around, hey, we really want to be a part of this church. We want to be committed as members. And I really see the potential in this person as a leader. And so pray about that. Consider that. And let's have conversations, humble conversations around what God lays out for the organization of his church. So God has organized the church with the purpose of making, growing, and keeping disciples. He's done that by giving the church members and leaders for the purpose of discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the church. <clears throat> thank you, Jesus, that you love your church. Help us to love your church as you love your church, especially those of us who lead and are preparing to be leaders. Help us to love you and because of our love for you and your love for us, help us to love your sheep and feed them, care for them, tend them, protect them, guide them with wisdom and humility and love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.